Once a pastor, he went to the ICU unit at the local hospital to visit a church member who was on life support. Well, the pastor stood by the man's bedside and he spoke to him for several minutes. The patient, though, he grew disturbed and agitated. In fact, he reached over for his pad and he wrote the pastor a note. Not wanting to further upset the fellow, the pastor just smiled and he slipped the note into his jacket pocket. He prayed for the fellow and then he left the hospital. Sadly, just a few hours later, the pastor got a call from a relative with news that the man had passed away. Well, it wasn't until about halfway through the funeral service that the pastor remembered the note that the man had given him that day. He'd forgotten all about it. He reached into his jacket pocket and he pulled it out and he held it up to the crowd. And he, ha- he said, I have here in my hand a piece of paper containing the last words of our beloved brother. But the pastor never read the note, for when he opened it up, the dead man had written, You're standing on my oxygen tube. Well, (laughs) I thought that was funny. Well, 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4 are Paul's last words. As he awaits execution, he records some final instructions for his young protege, Timothy. And as Timothy unfolds the note, he discovers what Paul was thinking as he prepared himself for eternity. Chapter 3 begins. But we know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. The Greek word translated perilous means dangerous, savage. Savage times will come. The last days will be full of perilous and dangerous situations. Paul's warning Timothy that the closer we get to the return of Jesus, society is going to grow worse, not better. And here's how. For men will be lovers of themselves. People will become self-absorbed. They'll exist for number one and lovers of money. I like what the early church father, John Chrysostom, once said. He had some stern words for money lovers. He said, a dreadful thing is the love of money. It disables both ears and eyes and makes men worse to deal with than a wild beast, allowing a man to consider neither conscience nor friendship nor fellowship nor salvation. The blinding influence of the love of money. But men will also become boasters, proud, blasphemers. Years ago, there was a local atheist group in Madison, Wisconsin. They erected a sign next to the city's Christmas tree. It read, In this season of the winter solstice, may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devil, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only the natural world. Religion is but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. A blasphemous sign, a blasphemous statement. But ironically, printed on the back of the sign were these words. Thou shalt not steal. Now isn't it amazing how people will blaspheme God and yet still lean on His laws to protect their own self-interests? I mean, atheists mock the idea of God, but without the moral standards of God, without a right and a wrong, they can't construct an orderly world worth living in. Life turns into chaos. 
But in these last days, in these perilous times, men will be blasphemers. They'll also become disobedient to parents. Once after a visit to the United States, the Duke of Windsor was asked what impressed him the most. He replied, the way American parents obey their children. Pop culture today mocks parental authority. It glamorizes rebellion. Entertainment media encourages disrespect. Today, disputing authority is seen as a rite of passage. A parent who wants his child's respect has to earn it and fight for it and insist on it. You're not going to get a lot of help from the television or the radio or the public school. Paul continues his list, the unthankful. Years ago, I read of Michelle Tribot. She's a 36-year-old mother from Illinois. Michelle was tired of the backtalk, the whining, the general lack of appreciation. And so this mother of three children decided to go on strike. She climbed up into the kids' treehouse and she refused to come down. She stayed in the treehouse all night long. Her husband, Sonny Tribot, said Michelle came down only after the kids left brownies at the base of the tree. He made the comment, There's good news. Negotiations to settle the work stoppage have begun. <laughs> Seriously, in the last days, folks will be better off and appreciate it less. They'll be unthankful. They'll also be unholy. No one will fear God. Few will feel the need to make any sacrifices for His sake. Verse 3 tells us they'll be unloving. The word means without natural affection. Normal, natural ties will disappear. I read this past week of a 22-year-old Florida mother who killed her three-month-old son. She shook him to death for interrupting her while she was playing Farmville. The baby was crying while his mom tended to her virtual farm. Now that's unloving. That's not natural. This past Thursday was Valentine's Day for most folks, but on most college campuses, it was National Condom Week. You see, this is what's happening today. We're becoming increasingly unloving to the point of replacing love and romance with raw lust and sex. People will also become unforgiving. Folks will grow bitter, self-righteous. Imagine a world where everyone carries a grudge. That's where we're headed today. And slanderers. Today, we live in an internet world where folks can blog and pass innuendo and gossip on, and it never gets checked. They can tweet, then never check the credibility. Folks will then be without self-control and brutal. Hey, we live in an increasingly violent society. This has become big headlines in the news lately, the school shootings that we've seen. But did you know every 22 seconds in America, a person is either beaten, stabbed, or shot every 22 seconds? And what would you expect after sampling the violence on primetime television? David Walsh, president of the National Institute of Media and Family, he stated, It is tragically ironic that at the very time we are wringing our hands about violent behavior among young people, we are simultaneously entertaining them with it. Now, now, media people will deny this. But understand, 
those same people are going to pay $4 million for a 30-second Super Bowl commercial and then turn around and tell us that TV and video games have very little impact on violent behavior. Come on. Who's kidding who? Do they really think that we're that foolish? In the last days, folks will also be despisers of good and traitors. You'll no longer be able to trust people. I mean, there was a day in America where a man's word was his bond, but no longer. Everyone today is looking for loopholes. Contracts are renegotiated. Handshakes mean nada. People will also be headstrong, stubborn, prejudicial. They're right and everybody else is wrong. Just look at Congress. And folks will become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If ever there was a statement that fit modern America, this is it. People today live for the weekend. And not to go to church, by the way. But to party all night. And to play all day. We've become lovers of pleasure. In the USA today, Americans aged 16, or 18 to 64 were polled. And they were asked about how they, would, how they spend their leisure time. At the top of the list was television, 15.1 hours a week. Religion was way down on the list, less than an hour a week on going to church or reading the Bible or anything having to do with their relationship with God. We spend over 15 hours a week watching television, and we spend less than 50 minutes a week on our relationship with God. Another way to put it is we've become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's been said in America, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. In the last days, men will value fleeting pleasures more than they'll value a right relationship with God. Verse 5 continues Paul's last day's analysis, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Realize up until now, Paul's list doesn't exclude the desire to be religious. You can be a lover of yourself, or a lover of money, or proud, or headstrong, and still be religious. But spirituality and religion are not the same as godliness. You see, you can be religious and yet deny God's power. People will embrace the outward form of religion without the force of religion. They'll embrace the religion without the reality. The liturgy without the life lived behind it. The prophet Jeremiah, he lived among religious people. Hypocritical Jews. And in Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 2, he describes them as follows. God is near in their mouth, but far from their mind. These will be the people of the last days. People who want just enough of God to feel secure, but not enough of God that would change their heart or renew their mind or reform how they live. Reminds me of a quote. I've, I've used it a lot, but it's so powerful. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of Him to make me love a man of a different color or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. 
I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Well, one day soon, the world that we live in will realize that the Almighty doesn't come in $3 portions. Jesus is either Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. Notice what Paul says about people who embrace style without substance. He says, and from such people turn away. Hey, if a believer is in a church full of people who are simply playing at religion, it's not his or her job to remain among those folks hoping that they'll change. Paul says, no, remove yourself from such people. Chances are they'll rub off on you rather than vice versa. Verse 6, for of this sort are those who creep into households. I like how the NIV renders it. They worm their way in. And they make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Paul is thinking of the smooth-talking preacher who plays on the rich widow's guilt or naivety and milks her for her money. Slick pastors who play at religion are consummate con artists. They're manipulators. And they're out there, man. They know how to pluck on the heartstrings of emotionally vulnerable people in order to pad their own pockets. You can watch them on television. They're out there. He says they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's a lot of Christians today. They're always on the lookout for a fresh insight. They, they're always on the hunt for a new revelation. They're chasing down that secret key rather than resting in the truth that they know. The grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and letting their faith grow and incubate and blossom. They run around trying to discover the magic potion. See, it's a lot easier to excuse my failure on a lack of knowledge than it is on a lack of faith or a lack of obedience, or a lack of living up to the knowledge that I have. Verse 8 tells us, Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will pro progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. You remember in Exodus 7, Moses threw down his rod before the Pharaoh, and it turned into a serpent. And yet the magicians of Egypt were able to duplicate that miracle. Apparently Satan also has supernatural power. In Exodus chapter 7, it's interesting, the sorcerers are nameless. It's not until 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8 that we discover their names. Janus and Jambres. These were occult practitioners. They were able to duplicate the miracles of Moses it's interesting, they turned the Nile into blood as well. They called up frogs. It wasn't until Moses brought the third plague of lice that they threw in the towel. Exodus 8 verse 19 says, Then the magician said, This is the finger of God. We can't compete with him. Yes, Satan also has supernatural power, but it's limited. The power of God exceeds the power of Satan. Paul tells us that the false teachers in the last days will likewise demonstrate a powerful resistance to the truth. But eventually that resistance will be overcome and prove foolish. It will be eclipsed by the power of God. Paul focuses in on Timothy now in verse 11. 
He says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions. You know, we should kind of put ourselves through that same test. What if someone followed your doctrine? in your manner of life, in your purpose, in your faith, in your long-suffering, in your love, in your perseverance, in your persecutions, and how you handled afflictions. Which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Timothy's hometown, by the way, was Lystra in Galatia. And it was there that Paul was stoned by the Jews early in his ministry. Timothy apparently had seen firsthand. He had been an eyewitness of Paul's godly example. He had seen how that the ungodly suffered persecution. And yet how Paul had been undaunted. How Paul had persevered. He also witnessed God's deliverance of Paul in that moment. Now he raised him up again to continue to preach. Paul's life was an object lesson. What had happened to Paul happens to all believers to one degree or another. At some time or not, Paul promises Timothy, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now Christians love to claim the promises of God, don't we? Matthew 6 verse 33 is one of my favorites. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. What a wonderful promise. Philippians 4 verse 19, that's a great promise. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I love Hebrews 13 verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. We love God's promises, except 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. But it too is a promise from God. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, this is the promise you've never seen taped up on your refrigerator. This is the promise that never made the bumper sticker. And yet it is a promise of God nonetheless. Hey, we might as well expect it and prepare ourselves for it. If this world hated Jesus, then it's going to hate us. Verse 13, But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. He's saying to them, the key is not some new revelation, but it's the once and for all revelation that we have received in this book, God's Word, our Bible. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now Paul sees this as an advantage. That he's known the book from childhood. One of the greatest gifts we can give our kids is to teach them God's word from an early age. And he's saying these same things that you've known from childhood, these are the things that are going to make you wise into salvation. These are the very things that are going to cause you to succeed in your Christian life. Hey, realize, you never graduate from the Bible. Did you know that? You you never master this book and then move on to something else. You don't study the Bible for a semester and then sell it back to the bookstore. You don't do that. This book is your curriculum for life. The Bible is God's word to us. 
It's all that we need to obtain and maintain a right relationship with God. And then Paul assures us in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. As we talked about this morning, the whole enchilada is inspired by God. Not a spot here, not a spot there. Certain sections of Scripture are not more inspired than other sections of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all equally inspired. And this is why it's important to teach the whole book, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Hey, the book of Leviticus is as inspired as the book of Matthew. There are truths that we can glean from all of the Bible. It's so true, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. I I like this little poem. I thought I knew the Bible Reading piecemeal, hit or miss, now a bit of John or Matthew, now a snatch of Genesis. Certain chapters of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd, 12th of Romans, 1st of Proverbs. Yes, I thought I knew the Word, but I found a thorough reading was a different thing to do. And the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through. You who treat the crown of writings as you treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude and patient look, Try a worthier procedure. Try a broad and steadier view. You will kneel in very rapture when you read the Bible through. All Scripture is given to us by inspiration of God. And the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now here's the breakdown. Doctrine is what to believe. The Bible's good for that. Correction is what not to believe. The Bible helps us there too. Instruction is how to live. Reproof is how not to live. And the Bible accomplishes all four tasks. What to believe, what not to believe, how to live, how not to live. You want to know? Read your Bible. The Word of God has been given to us that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All that we need to know To grow and go as a Christian is found right here in the pages of the Bible. Chapter 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Jesus is returning to earth to judge every soul that has ever lived and establish His eternal throne on planet earth. We've been talking about that. Reminds me of a story. Once a lady was accused of a crime. She was guilty and she knew she needed a crack defense attorney. A lawyer was recommended and she wrote down his name and address, but she delayed in contacting him. And as the trial date grew closer, she realized that she needed to act. So finally, she called the attorney. Sadly, though, it was too late. He explained that if she had just called him a week earlier, he would have been happy to take her case. But two days ago, he had been appointed judge. Instead of being her advocate, he had now become her judge. And this is going to happen to millions of people all over the planet. Today, Jesus sits at the right hand of God as our advocate, as our defense attorney. He is willing to plead our case and secure for us mercy and pardon from God. 
But soon, very soon now, when Jesus returns, he'll be appointed judge. And the verdict will be clear. He'll be forced to condemn all those sinners who've never been washed in his blood. Don't wait too late to place that call to Jesus. This is why Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. To be ready in season and out of season. When it's convenient for you. When it's inconvenient. When it's planned. When it's spontaneous. Preach the word, Timothy. And then he tells him how to do it. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort. With all long-suffering and teaching. We need to proclaim God's word with as much persuasive power as we can muster. Convince. When you talk to people, do you try to convince them? We need to rebuke at times. We need to be in their face. Tell them the hard truths. We need to encourage. Sometimes we need to put our arm around a shoulder. and Prod a brother on. We need to teach. Christianity is a teaching faith. And we need to stay at it. Don't give up. Here's another poem. I'm kind of into poems tonight. You don't want to hear this one one day. My friend... I stand in judgment now, and I feel that you are to blame somehow. On earth we talk together day by day, but you never did point the way. You know the Lord in truth and glory, but never did you tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safe to Him. Though we lived together on the earth, you never told me of the new birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention Him. I don't want that to ever be said of me. Preach the word in season, out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not, when it's planned, when it's spontaneous. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Verse 3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In the last days, the truth will no longer be sought. People will develop an appetite for half-truths, for fables, for half-baked ideas. They'll listen to what pleases and teases, what tickles rather than what teaches. And the church and its pastors will cater to their demand. This is what's tragic. They'll water down the truth and they'll pass out defective doctrines, fables rather than the truth. One of the scariest passages in all the scripture to me is Jeremiah 5 verse 31. There it says, The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so. Oh my. Apparently, church members get the leaders and teachers they deserve. If we hunger for the meat of God's Word, then God will meet it with faithful teaching that feeds our soul. But if we chase those things that itch the ears, that just tease, that where we can just kind of be, continue on secure in our ignorance, if we follow those things, we'll follow them to our demise. He says, but you... And he's speaking here to Timothy, the faithful minister. Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Perilous times 
have a way of discouraging faithful servants. Paul is telling Timothy to persevere, stick to it, man, endure. He should finish that which God had called him to do. Never forget, it was by perseverance that the snail reached the ark. Persevere, endure. Searching for an example to illustrate perseverance, Paul uses himself in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knows now, he's waiting before Nero. He knows that his life on earth is coming to a close. Graduation day is right around the corner for Paul. He's about to depart this world to be with Christ. And notice Paul describes his life as a drink offering. A drink offering was a sacred libation that was poured out on the sacrificial meat. It added flavor to the sacrifice. It was one more thing that would please God. The drink offering was sort of like spiritual steak sauce. Paul's life had been like a drink offering. It added flavor. It tenderized the hearts of the saints who gave themselves as living sacrifices. Paul had been like an A1 sauce poured out over the living sacrifices of the churches to whom he ministered. I guess you could call Paul an A1 servant of Christ. Notice too, Paul's life could never be taken from him, for it had already been given to God and poured out on others. Hey, you can't take from me what I no longer possess. You could say Paul left it all on the field. He had nothing left to give. He gave of his life to Jesus. He's about to pass now into eternity, and he's going to do so with no regrets. He's held nothing back. Paul even speaks of his impending execution, not as a death, notice, but as my time of departure. I like that. I'm not going to die, I'm just going to depart. And that Greek word, translated departure, it's a wonderful word, by the way. Warren Wiersbe provides at least four definitions for this word. It can mean to hoist an anchor and set sail. And that's what Paul's about to do. He's headed for new waters. He's leaving this harbor for the heavenly shore. Second, it can mean to take down a tent. Paul's physical body has just been a tent. It's just been a temporary dwelling. He's about to strike the tent and move into permanent quarters. Third, departure means to free a prisoner. Death for Paul was a jailbreak. God's jailbreak. It was God's means of deliverance from prison and the persecution that he had experienced. And then fourth, this word departure can mean to unyoke an ox. Paul had spent a lifetime as an ox for God, as a burden bearer. It's been a lifetime of tireless service to God, and now he's about to enter his rest. He's about to depart. His time of departure has about come. And then he continues, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul was a marathoner crossing the finish line. He was the fighter going the distance all 15 rounds. Paul refused to tap out. He's now about to break the tape. All his life, he has ran to win. Now he's stretching and he's straining. And he's finally going to be rewarded. What a moment it is. He's come to the end of his life and he's finishing well. Once a little boy received a yellow parakeet as a birthday gift. He was painting his cage 
with a coat of varnish when he reached inside to remove the bird. The parakeet, though, tragically fell into the varnish and drowned. It was so sad. The boy was so upset, he was crying when his older brother found him and comforted him as only an older brother can. He put his arm around him and he said, Cheer up, little buddy. At least your bird had a good finish. (laughs) We're on a roll tonight. And Paul, too, is finishing well. He's fought, he's ran, and he's kept the faith. Hey, don't gloss over how Paul views his life. He doesn't say, well, the party's over. (laughs) He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. It wasn't a party, it was a race, it was a fight. He had gone toe-to-toe with all that life could throw at him. He had endured, he had kept the faith, he had finished well. Paul fought Judaizers and Gnostics, illnesses and weariness, jealous people, pagan people, greedy people, physical assaults and personal attacks and vicious lies. Close friends had forsaken him, churches had denied him. Paul's Christian life was an uphill fight from beginning to end. How do you view your life? Are you on a stroll through the park? Are you on a tiptoe through the tulips? I believe if you live for God's glory, your life will be nothing short of a brawl. Do you work if you... Do your job with integrity and you'll fight your co-workers who want you to cut corners. Hold high standards at home and you'll fight your kids who want to compromise. Desire holiness in your heart and you'll fight your own flesh. Lovingly lead your wife and you'll probably fight your mother-in-law. Open up your home for a Bible study and you'll fight the neighbor next door who pitches a fit. Hey, this world is hostile to God. It killed Jesus. Don't expect the world to roll out the red carpet for you. We need to stop our whining. We need to buckle our chin strap, fight the good fight, finish the race, Keep the faith. And the winner of the fight receives a belt, a crown, a reward. And this is what Paul's eyes are on. I suggest this is what you keep your eyes on. The reward. He says in verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing Two types of crowns are mentioned in Scripture. The Greek terminology is diadem and stephanos. The diadem was the king's crown. It was inherited rather than earned. But the stephanos, or the laurel, it was the victor's wreath. It was given to the winners of the Olympic Games. It was worn by the conquering generals. And and this is what Paul is seeking. This is the reward he expects. The stephanos of righteousness. Did you know that the Bible teaches certain crowns are passed out to Christians at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus, He will reward believers who have remained faithful to Him in their life and in their service. In fact, the New Testament mentions five different crowns. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27 lists the imperishable crown. This is given to the believer who brings his body under control and lives a disciplined life. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul mentions a crown of rejoicing. This goes to the person who loves people and who wins souls for Jesus Christ. James 1 verse 12 talks about a crown of life. This is awarded to those believers who resist temptation and who overcome. 1 Peter 5 verse 4 speaks of a crown of glory. This is given to faithful church leaders who follow the Lord and lead His people well. And here, a crown of righteousness. This is received by all believers who keep their hearts primed, who stay undistracted by the allurements of this world and live their lives longing for the appearance of Jesus Christ. Do you love His appearing? If so, you'll receive the crown of righteousness. I have a friend who used to call himself pan-trib. You know, there's pre-trib, there's post-trib. People who believe the rapture will occur before the tribulation. People who believe it will occur after the tribulation. He called himself pan-trib. He said, ah, it didn't really matter. I'll just figure however it pans out. Well, you laugh, I laugh too, but, but I'm, I really, the more I thought about it, the more I disagreed with him. You, you don't want to be pan-trib. You won't get the crown of righteousness if you're pan-trib. I, I don't like that attitude. I'm pre-trib, for I believe that the next thing to happen on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church, man. I love His appearing. I'm looking for the Lord Jesus. I long to see Him. Jesus is what's next. You won't endure the fight if you don't see the coming prize. As a kid, I loved my mom. But I didn't always love her appearance. When my hand was in the cookie jar, and I was getting something I know I shouldn't get, and she walked into the kitchen, I loved my mom. But I didn't necessarily love her appearance at that moment. A special crown goes to the man or the woman who keeps his hands out of the cookie jar and lives his life ready for Jesus. I'm hearing of so many people today who are getting caught with their hand in the cookie jar. I mean, don't they remember Jesus is coming back? Be ready when He does. Live your life in love with His appearing. For the rest of the chapter, Paul now deals with some practical issues. We get a rare glimpse into Paul's personal world. In verse 9 he begins, he writes to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly. Paul's legal proceedings weren't going so well. His appeals had almost been exhausted. An execution date had not yet been set, but it would be soon. Paul would love to see his son in the faith one more time. Nobody should have to die alone. Hurry, Timothy. Hurry, Timothy. Verse 10 tells us why it was so vital that Timothy come to him. He says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. There's a famous painting of the rich young ruler. All you see is his back as he walks away from Jesus. So sad. But that painting could also be of Demas. Demas was once a trusted ally of Paul. But the world stole his heart. Demas sold his soul for the fleeting things of this world. The pleasures, the possessions, the promotion. He got weary of the fight. 
He succumbed to the ridicule and the hardship. I know Demas' last words before he bailed out. They're not in the Bible, but I know them. I know them because I've heard them so many times. He turned to Paul and he said, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Those were his last words. Not too long ago, I bumped into a guy at the Waffle House. He was once a part of Calvary Chapel. If I told you who he was, you'd recognize him. But it had been months since I'd seen him. He told me that he was contemplating a divorce. And this is what he told me. Sandy, I just want some happiness. He'd forgotten about God, about doing what's right, about his commitments. He'd given up. And he'd excused it all because he just wanted some happiness. Do you know what commitment is? Commitment is the willingness to be unhappy until you work it out. That's commitment. But this is what Demas said. Man, I just want some happiness. You know, that's what he said, but that's not what he meant. For if he wanted true happiness, he would have stuck with his commitments. He would have stayed faithful to Paul and to God. No, what he meant was, I just want to get drunk. I just want a few moments where I'm free from this responsibility that I'm under. I'm tired of my job and my nagging wife and the kids who disrespect me and all the ingratitude I take. Man, life has gotten hard for me and I just want out. That's what he really meant. Trust me. Trust me, Demas. Regardless of how attractive it sounds, abandoning and escaping your God-given responsibilities is not anybody's ticket to happiness. It might be the way to a few jollies, but that's not happiness. That's not enduring happiness. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction in that. And on top of your emptiness, you know what you're going to add to your life? Alimony and child support and shame and guilt and the loss of your kids' respect, you call that happiness? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Hey, life is a fight. I concede you that. Life is a fight with or without Jesus. But without Jesus, life is a wild goose chase with no goose. With Jesus, there is a prize after the fight. Paul was now alone. Crescens had left for Galatia. Titus for Dalmatia. Apparently they had left on kingdom business. He says, only Luke is with me. Luke was not only the New Testament historian, but he was also Paul's personal physician. There's evidence that Paul had an infectious eye disease that flared up in the more coastal tropical areas. And Luke was there to tend to his personal needs. He says, get Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for ministry. And this is wonderful news that Paul now wants Mark. For earlier in Acts chapter 15 on their first missionary journey, Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And so when it came time for their second expedition, Paul refused to take Mark along. It created a split between he and Barnabas. But now at the end of Paul's journeys, he once again desires to be with Mark. Shows you that Paul harbored no grudges. He had forgiven Mark. He was willing to give him a second chance. And now Paul considers him, and I quote, 
useful to me for ministry. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful act of forgiveness. Verse 12, And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus at the time. And Tychicus is delivering the letter to Timothy. And Paul is sending Tychicus to be Timothy's replacement so that Timothy can now come to Rome. In verse 13, Paul adds, Hey, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. You see, winter was right around the corner. And it was getting cold in that Roman prison. Paul needs a coat to stay warm. Hey, don't forget to bring the coat. And then he also asks for the books, especially the parchments. This amazes me. Paul wrote half the New Testament. He wrote half the New Testament. He took the gospel around the globe. He started churches everywhere. Yet he's got a few days left to live and he says to him, Man, I really need my Bible. Bring me my Bible. Here's a man who kept growing even to the end. He kept growing in his faith until the day he died. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that's true whether you've been a Christian for 30 minutes or for 30 years. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. I I like Paul. He pulls no punches. This Alexander did him much harm. And Paul levels the worst curse you can place on a man. He affords him no grace, no mercy. Just give the guy what he deserves. Oh boy. Repay him according to his works. That's what you never once said about you. Paul had enemies as well as friends, and before he departs this earth, he points them out to Timothy, both the enemies and the friends. He points out his buddies, but he also points out the guys that are going to give him trouble. You need to know both camps. He says, you also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Verse 16 is one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of the Bible. He says, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. The Roman courts, in the preliminary hearings, evidence would be presented for and against the accused. And so a time was scheduled for the prosecutor to parade his witnesses before the court. And then the defendant could bring in his witnesses to affirm his innocence and to attest to his character. But on the day that Paul had defended himself before Nero, nobody showed up. None of his witnesses showed up. Not a single friend came. No one bothered to show up and testify on Paul's account. This is the man who had led thousands of people to Jesus Christ. This is the man who had started churches all over the world. And yet when he needed a friend... No other human being showed up. And yet Paul says, no big deal. I didn't charge it to their account. I hold no resentment. Rather, he learned a lesson through his ordeal. Verse 17. He says, and this is beautiful. This is one of the most beautiful verses of all the Scripture. But the Lord stood with me. When everybody else had forsaken me, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me 
and that all the Gentiles might hear. At his trial before Nero, only Jesus stood with Paul. But you know what Paul realized in that moment? That Jesus was all that he needed. And Jesus is all that you need, even when your friends forsake you. I love the paraphrase of verse 17. One man renders it, At my preliminary hearing, no one stood by me. They all ran like scared rabbits. But it doesn't matter. The Master stood by me. (coughs) At the end of verse 17, Paul says of his first imprisonment, And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. It could be that he was literally thrown to the lions. In many of Rome's attacks against the church, she would throw believers to the wild beasts. Thousands of believers were fed to the lions. It could well be that God struck the big cats with lockjaw, sort of like he did when Daniel was in the lion's den. Paul could also have been speaking metaphorically of Nero or of even Satan himself. You remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 refers to Satan as a roaring lion. The point, though, that Paul makes is that God delivered him. And he'll do it again if he chooses. Verse 18, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now greet Prisca and Aquila. This is Priscilla and Aquila. This was the dynamic duo, the wonderful couple that merged ministry and marriage. You know, everywhere their names appear in Scripture, we find them hosting a Bible study in their home. Almost everywhere. Apparently this couple opened up their home, both their hearts and their home, to Jesus Christ. And also greet the household of Onesiphorus. Now recall, Onesiphorus was visiting Paul in Rome at this moment. And I can imagine him sort of sitting there next to Paul, watching him write this letter, kind of poking Paul in the ribs and asking him to make mention of his family in the letter. Hey, include my family. And so he says, greet the household of Onesiphorus. Verse 20, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Melita sick. Now, if it's God's will to always heal an illness, why did Paul leave behind a sick Trophimus? You would have thought if it was God's will for him to be healed, that Paul would have healed him, or at least stayed with him and prayed with him until he was healed. See, the truth is, is that God often used illnesses for his purposes. Paul goes on to say to Timothy, Do your utmost to come before winter. And why the rush? Why does he need to get there before winter? You remember that coat back in Troas? <laughs> he wants his coat. Timothy needs to fetch that coat before it turns chilly. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. All these were believers in Rome. And here are Paul's final words. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's second letter to Timothy.